Welcome to another episode of the Bloom Network podcast. Today's guest is Daniel Christian Wall, author of the book Designing Regenerative Cultures. Daniel is an international educator, speaker, and strategic advisor. He has a PhD in Design for Sustainability, a Master's of Science in Holistic Science, and a Bachelor's Degree in Biology. Daniel has worked with local and national governments on foresight and futures, and he consults companies on sustainable innovation. He has co-authored and taught sustainability courses for various universities and design schools. We're stoked to have Daniel on the show today, and I highly recommend his book for a good introduction to whole systems thinking. If this is your first time listening, this podcast is a production of Bloom Network. Bloom is an international community of people and groups who promote regenerative solutions for healthy relationships with each other and the natural world. Local Bloom chapters host educational workshops and community actions, and we connect online to share best practices with each other across the cities where we live. If there is a topic or a guest you'd like us to cover on the show, please let us know. And if you enjoy this podcast, you can support by making a donation on our website, bloomnetwork.org. Thank you for joining us today. It's such an honor to talk to you, Daniel. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I have 80 bazillion questions for you, but I'll ask the ones that are most relevant for our listeners here. And the first thing I'd like to start with, there are a lot of parents in Bloom Network, and I know you're a new father, right? Yes. Um, came to fatherhood late in life at 45 and with a partner that I've been together with for 21 years and um, didn't think it was going to be part of my lifetime somehow, this being a parent, and I've been transformed. It's been absolutely amazing, and um, I'm just every day learning uh, more and more from my daughter, and um, it gives my work a whole different gravitas, having a next generation right in front of me rather than the hypothetical seventh (laughs) generation that I was working for for the last 20 years. (laughs) A lot of new parents I know are really tired just from syncing up with a sleep cycle with a baby and that kind of thing. Are there ways that you're finding to be regenerative personally, like that close to home? I guess I'm, I'm blessed that my wife enables me to still go um, to stand up paddling once a day for about 45 minutes to an hour. And as long as I'm, I take that time to be out on the paddleboard singing my mantras, then um, that gives me the energy both for work and for for not sleeping so much. And I, but I do need the exercise. And the, the nice thing about paddleboarding is that and doing yoga on the paddleboard is that it's a really all body exercise. And, and combining it with mantras, it's it's like meditation. It's, it's it's a dynamic meditation because the mantras make your breath cycle sync into a rhythm that then puts you into an alpha wave state. And um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very rounded way of grounding myself. And I, I notice as soon as I fall out of the practice of doing it, at least, let's say, four times a week, I start crumbling on the edges. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing that with me. Going one more layer out, in your book, Designing Regenerative Cultures, you talk about the importance of localized work. And I'm wondering what you're up to on the island of Majorca related to regenerative culture there. That's an interesting question because um, I've been here on Majorca now, um, well, I guess in, um, in the autumn it will be eight years. And I did a lot more local work in the first four years and the economic crisis hit pretty hard here. So there was a, was a point where it was difficult to actually do the local work and find enough work to, to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I'm very close with a local group that is called Permacultura Mediterranea, so the local permaculture network. And every now and then I teach on, on some of their courses. A friend of mine who used to be the, the chief designer of Campus Shoes, which is a Mallorcan company, has been running an annual conference called Tierra Alma y Sociedad, um, Soil, Soul and Society, that, that Satish Kumar and Vandana Shiva and sometimes Fritjof Capra or Gunter Pauli and people like that come to usually runs in October. And um, I've helped him expand that initially. It was just a sort of circle of friends that would meet about 150 people and and listen to these inspiring speakers. And um, I remember about seven years ago, or six years ago, I talked to Guillermo and and said, um, if you really wanted to leverage change, then you should invite the teachers of the island to these events. And so since then, 
he, he actually took that advice and is running it at a much bigger venue where about 400 teachers from the Balearic Islands come to learn about eco-literacy and ecological consciousness. And that's, I think, having a really good sort of drip-feeding effect on, on what they teach and how they teach and how they think about pedagogy and even being aware of what eco-literacy might be and how a school garden can be a teaching tool for more than just um, how to grow food, but about maths and all sorts of other things that you can do in a more engaged way. And then I've, I've worked with the local, because Mallorca is heavily um, influenced by tourism. The 90% of the economy is, is tourism-based. Mm -hmm. I worked as a consultant for an innovation cluster um, of the tourism industry and, and helped to broker partnerships in things like a local kitchen that produces meals for some hotels and some um, schools and hospitals, getting them to buy more locally from, from local organic farmers using local almonds or carob. Like there's a lot of carob being produced on Mallorca. Mm -hmm. So it's just shifting a little bit more the consciousness towards this idea of zero kilometer food, like local food that is, mm -hmm. that is produced as close to where it's being used. And then I did another project in, when was that, 2014-15 with the Belgian um, detergent company that produces ecological cleaning products. Mm -hmm. And what we explored was could we use waste products from Mallorca, so either municipal waste or forestry waste or agricultural waste, and use biodigesters to turn it into the the chemical ingredients necessary for creating cleaning products and detergents. And it was it was a pilot project that was co-run by Forum for the Future in London. Mm -hmm. And it was a really, really fascinating project because it was basically not just a circular economy project, it was also um, a biomaterials circular economy project. And, and an interesting partnership between a global, like a company that works globally in 40 countries, uh, being a kind of knowledge holder of how to do the products, but then working with local companies for the production. So, so it wasn't the idea of having yet another company come into Mallorca and displace small local businesses, but actually working with them. And all these projects, none of them have created massive change. But then I remember that when I first got here and gave the first talks about, like I always like to start with questions and, and so asking the question, what would a sustainable Mallorca look like? Seven years ago, people were saying, how can you even ask that question? I mean, what audacity to, to think at the scale of an entire island. And at the time I was sort of often replying jokingly saying, I, I used to think about how can we create a sustainable world. So right. creating a more sustainable island um, seems relatively manageable. <laughs> and um, what I've noticed is, and I'm, I'm not saying it's because seven years ago I said these things, now everybody's talking about it. I'm not quite that deluded. But what, what I've noticed is that now the local government is asking these questions. They are making plans for Mallorca as if the first island with no combustion engine by 20, far too long in the future, 2050 or something. But they're beginning to at least um, speak that language. And seven years ago, that wasn't the case. And maybe I helped a little bit along with mm -hmm. other friends to, to start that conversation. In a way, the short answer is I should be doing more locally again. I've in the last few years um, worked a bit too much globally and internationally and, and not enough locally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find that's a balance in my work too, trying to balance the international scale of working with the, with the local. It's a large bandwidth to wrap your head around sometimes and your heart and the, the focus. Um, but that's really inspiring to hear the, the difference that it's possible to make, you know, one person sharing what you know and what you care about and are excited about. Thank you. I think the, the important thing is with those things is to, on the one hand, to just keep with integrity having conversations with people about what is possible in the future and then um, trusting that even if a project seems like it failed, it might have seeded ideas that two years later pop up somewhere else. And as long as you don't try to kind of all identify with these ideas and have to have proof that it was your idea and you succeeded in it if you're just glad to seed positive memes and positive ways of thinking and then trust that they will eventually it's it's like creating the the compost and creating the soil in which fertile projects can grow and it mm -hmm. takes a while to create a good soil
And so that's what I've been doing. And I see a big change. In the last couple of years, a, a number of organizations have set up that are now looking at the issue of plastics in the ocean and avoiding so much plastic going into the sea. And, and even the local baddies like the local waste incineration plant is, is really quite serious in cleaning up their act and becoming one of the most advanced recycling plants on, um, in Europe. So things are shifting. That's so inspiring. Even in just this short span of time, you've mentioned so many different types of things that can be happening. I know I meet a lot of people who have this feeling of wanting to do something or feeling rather disempowered by looking at the power balance on the planet and facing climate change and the inequality and these sorts of things and being like, well, what? What can I do? Where do I start? Do you have any advice for someone, given how big the landscape is of, of what you can do, how many different sorts of things there are to get your hands dirty or meet people and learn? Do you have any advice for someone just starting out and wondering where to start, how to find something they resonate with so they can just do one small thing to get going and, and feel the empowerment and how much community there is out there around this stuff. I think one of the most important things to get clear from the beginning is this idea that we're too small to make a difference is, is kind of a really dangerous idea um, because the reality is that everybody is making a difference every day by what you do and what you don't do. Um, like a friend of mine, um, professor for systems uh, thinking in, at the University of Hull, says everything is an intervention. So whatever you do intervenes in the larger system that you're part of and, and somehow affects it. And in that sense, we are all incredibly powerful. We can really make a difference. And um, yes, it's, it's sometimes overwhelming when you see the massive scale problems like climate change. How does it really make a difference if I fly less, if I use public transport if I look at shifting towards electric cars. Um, but the important thing is to start somewhere where your heart's really beating strongly. Uh, one very easy way into already making a difference is, is through food because it's a connection between community and bioregional health, personal health and planetary health is, is that if we make good food choices, if we eat locally from organic agriculture um, support local farmers go to local farmers markets even if they are marginally more expensive and but but that's also changing in a lot of places you can get buyers cooperatives that, that actually make it quite accessible it just needs a little bit of research to see how can i get my local organic food at a decent price but even if at the end you pay a, a touch more people often end up paying high medical bills for having had a bad diet and if you invest in your own future or like by by spending a little bit more on local healthy organic food it benefits your own health but it also benefits the health of your local community and the local bioregion so i think that's a, it's a, it's a very powerful entry point and also through food at farmers markets you you, you meet like-minded people and and so it's also an entry point into community into people who who also care because it, it it can be in particularly in bigger cities it can be a little bit um shocking when you when you start to wake up to the urgency of everything that we need to deal with yesterday and mm -hmm. uh, like really five past 12 now and at the same time you see that there's a lot of people still running in the consumer mill and not really that aware yet and it it's important to find a, a sangha, to find a community of, of like-minded people that that support you in this. And I mean, sometimes social media, what you're starting now with the Bloom Network, it's a start where, where people can maybe connect through that. And also any kind of consumer choice, every time you spend a dollar or euro or any kind of your national currency, you indirectly part of a degenerative system, the way our money system is built. But but you still have choices. You, you can choose to buy more locally. You can choose to buy products that last rather than the cheapest stuff that breaks immediately. And you can watch out that they're healthy products, both for people who are making it, for the people who are using them and um, along the entire supply chain. So, And, and again, the, the access to websites and 
product testing type, uh, sites where you can find out what is a good product is, is so much better now than it was 10 years ago. In most countries now, you, you can get the information through the internet of where you could get better alternatives. Right. A related question is, um, given the landscape of what you look at as regenerative culture seems vast, I mean, there is a, a lot of it happening around the world and a lot of people working on it. I'm wondering how you balance kind of the overview and the systems layer of thinking with getting to know the micro details of like one example would be regenerating soil. Do you go down different wormholes at different times? Do you do that based on the consulting projects that you work on or something that you're interested in? What's your process like between those two scales of thinking? Good question, really interesting question. One, one framework I do work with a lot in terms of my design work is this concept of scale linking design. And there's the scales from like material science, what materials do you make your products from to product design to, to architecture, um, how do we build buildings to our communities, then to the industrial ecology, how do we feed the community with the things we need, the, the wider bioregional level, and then the kind of more collaborative networks at national and, and global scale. And no matter what scale you're working on, with whatever project you're in, engaged in, it's really important to do this pulsing process or the, the scale linking, to always consider if, you, if you're an architect, for example, and you build a um, German-style passive house with full air recycling, heat recovery, and all those kind of things. But if you have a house like that and you fill it full with cheap Chinese toys made out of toxic plastic, then you actually get an accumulation of toxins in that house through the, the system that is supposedly... A green system. So if we don't do the scale linking, we can make mistakes. So that's on, on one level. Um, and in, in terms of the systems mapping, like I, I guess I climbed out of a wormhole. I, I studied biology, um, <laughs> was, was a, more of a heart scientist and got um, so disheartened by the way that Everything I wanted to do back then as a marine biologist studying whales and dolphins and, and, and elephant seals at Anunuevo State Park in, in California, um, that I wasn't allowed to speak about all the qualitative things that I was experiencing, the, the, the kind of more intuitive naturalist, like I've watched these animals for three months during the breeding season, I feel I can say something about what's going on, unless it was statistically significant and crunchable into numbers and it's it's a way that that we've come to see the world that is extremely um focused on what gets measured gets managed and if you can't measure and measure it and you can't therefore you can't manage it properly um it doesn't exist and that frustrated me enormously and that's why i left science and then i found out about holistic science which was a the, the course at schumacher college which is exactly addressing these issues and so in my own journey i've, I've kind of come to realize that when you walk around the four dimensions of sustainability, the social, the ecological, the economic, and, and the cultural or worldview dimension, um, learning is like a spiral path. You keep coming past the same area, for example, let's say circular economy, and every time you, you revisit it, you have an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into it. And, and of course, there is a danger in being a synthesizer and a connector and a linker of these big complex systems where everything is interconnected, which is you run the, the danger of being a jack of all trades, master of none. And in our current culture, that normally means like we people have no problem paying an expert. If you put expert in so-and-so before for your name, people are happy to pay you for your expertise. Um, but if your expertise is how it all fits together, um, our culture hasn't quite caught up with that yet. It's beginning, and in my personal opinion, I think it is shifting, but um, it is, yeah, I mean, there are basically, I get to a point where I talk to an engineer and when they start um, pulling out the calculus formulas, I'm, I'm kind of beginning to be a bit lost, uh, but I can talk enough so I know the language of an engineer and can engage with them. And it's the same with, a soil chemist and um, a microbiologist or um, a product designer. So yeah, the main thing is that it is this 
keeping on the circular path, revisiting, keeping aware of what connects to what, and then taking the opportunity, like a, a project with a client, to just go really deep into um, biofermentation and the chemistry of detergent products from biomaterials. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what I love about I mean, life's, life's all about learning. Um, that's one of the dimensions of when we talk regeneration is it's not just regenerating soils and forests. It's regenerating the capacity to be creative and learning and exploring and trying out new things, keeping, keeping fresh as a culture, keeping away from this idea that one day we will have all the sustainable solutions or regenerative solutions done and then nothing will change anymore. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. The, the life is all about change and transformation. Evolution is a transformative process. And so there won't be a destination regenerative culture or a destination sustainability. It's a journey that we will keep having to be on for the rest of whatever time is, is left for our species on this planet. Mm -hmm. Do you have any insights about the relationship between how regenerative cultures and regenerative design is developing currently and the relationship with indigenous peoples who in many ways have been living in regenerative ways? Do you find tension in that in your work? Or are there good ways that you've found to support organizations or indigenous peoples in different places so that it doesn't, the, the movement of regenerativity doesn't become another colonizing force? Or is, or is colonization actually like just antithetical to regeneration and regenerative societies? Oof, that's a complex question. There's, there's, there's a lot in that one. Um, but starting with the importance of, yes, of course, um, many indigenous wisdom cultures have had the understanding that to live in place over long periods of time means to keep regenerating the resource base you depend on. But it's not even done from that kind of mindset. Right. It's, it's all... Um, Everything is our relatives. All life is a, is a big community that indigenous people understand that they're part of that community and that they have to take care of that community. And of course, we, in some circles, when you speak about the importance of indigenous knowledge and traditional ecological knowledge, tech, um, people say, oh, yeah, well, you're, you're painting a picture of going back to some golden past that never existed. And um, the really what we need to do is to create a synthesis of the best of renewable modern technologies, renewable energy and green technologies and the traditional wisdom of knowing how to live in place over a long period of time and making decisions not with a four-year economic cycle in mind, but with a very longer, like to, to really ask ourselves these questions, not as a kind of platitude. The seventh generation thinking is, is really deep, regenerative culture like if you if you don't think that far ahead you will make mistakes and and we will we'll make mistakes in any case we have to keep relearning and that's also the indigenous cultures have that wisdom of living more in the questions rather than in the answers um we we're very sort of solutions and answer based as our culture and yeah, I do think that there's a huge danger. Like I'm not, I haven't been in California for a number of years now, but I have a lot of friends there. And both in California and strangely enough, also in Brazil, there seems to be this massive explosion around everybody you now wants to be regenerative. All the folks who were in social investment, kind of venture capital are setting up regenerative investment vehicles and all the wealthy people are buying up land and everybody wants to be best friends with people in the Savory Institute or people in Regen Ag and, and all the folks who, who are doing large landscape restoration. And in a way, we could celebrate that and say, wonderful, there's lots of people pouring money into large-scale um, ecosystems regeneration and the creation of healthy ecosystems functions. And of course, there is a massive danger that it will just, again, be another bubble. 
um, and another like that, that it would be watered down and commercialized and and so I think it's just staying in integrity with what every what, what, like I try to stay in integrity with what I'm doing and carefully watch who I work with and who I don't work with. And in a way, we as a community moving into this space need to keep each other in check. If we feel that there are outfits that talk a lot about regeneration and regenerative this, that, and the other, and they're not really practicing it, um, then we need to call them out and have conversations about it. Um, but I personally, like, like I've worked with, I brought Bioneers to Europe in um, 2010 and 2011, the first two European Bioneers conferences. I helped to organize them. One of them was at Findhorn at the eco-village I, I used to live at, and the other one was in Holland. And Bioneers is a nice network that builds that bridge between kind of techy, innovative uh, solutions in the sort of ecological design space. Mm-hmm. People like Jay Harmon and Biomimicry Institute and all those great folks that are doing wonderful technological innovations and and then at the same time being very much in touch with the indigenous um, wisdom networks in of, of North America. Um, I learned a lot working with a woman called Gigi Coyle who helped to co-found the Ojai Foundation and was also involved in, I don't think founding, but working with the School of Lost Borders, doing vision quest work in, in the Inyo Mountains. And that's sort of my connection to to indigenous wisdom, both through the way of council and through doing vision fasts and um, and, and, and circle work. Um, and for me, that's deeply grounding and important um, to, to honor those, those roots. I'm curious about the landscape of indigeneity in Europe. I mean, that's where my ancestry is from, and I've researched a little bit. But I'm curious if that's something you've come across in your regenerative work there. Are there, I guess what I'm asking is if you know any organizations or pathways of inquiry for, for example, white settlers living in North America to connect more with their European indigeneity. Is that, is is that mostly wiped out from the conquistadors and witch burnings and things or are there pockets of it still alive? The conquistadors were more, more Spanish and Portuguese going to the Latin America and doing very horrible things there. So they didn't really, but, but yes, the, the, the Spanish Inquisition and the witch burnings um, certainly wiped out a lot of that knowledge. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still Druids in Ireland and parts of Wales and um, probably the healthiest indigenous in that sense very like locally rooted indigenous people in in europe are in in scandinavia in the north of scandinavia the swami people and um and lapland and finland and mm-hmm. Norway, um, northern sweden but i think it's important that we don't create another sort of dualism it, it could almost become i've even been around some indigenous folks that are kind of on the speaker circuit and are the people that get invited to have the, you could say, token indigenous person speak at big events. And it can be a little bit like a, a different type of classism, sort of, a, you're not an ad- indigenous person, poor you. Uh, and I find that this concept of re-indigenization, becoming indigenous again, and un- understanding that we are all life, we are part of a planetary process, where we're much more interconnected and part of this larger planetary evolving process than the little individualist, speciesist, or racist, like that people, those people against those people, type of framings that have led us astray for so long. So I, I think what we should learn from indigenous people is how to really honor the land, how to ask the land for what it needs, how to learn with a place and the community of life in that place. And if you make that deep commitment to place and and becoming indigenous again, then I think that's really the challenge of, like, I personally don't see how we would create this vision of diverse regenerative cultures everywhere that are carefully adapted to the biocultural uniqueness of place without a process of 
re-indigenization, of becoming native again to that place. Um, like I'm choosing, I know that no matter how long I live on the island of Mallorca, there will be Mallorcans who will always say, well, you're a Giri, you're somebody from the north of Europe who moved here. Mm-hmm. But um, I think if I, like sometimes what, what happens, what happened to me in Scotland, I often knew more about the history and the background of the place than a lot of Scottish people did. So if you really make a commitment and want to learn about the place, you can become a local knowledge holder and a, and a carrier of an indigenous wisdom, of wisdom of that place. And I think that's part of being regenerative in the mm-hmm. long term. Thank you for answering those questions. Bouncing back to um, kind of industry scale things, I'm wondering how well networked the regenerative developments are within each industry. So, for example, plant-based paints and glues, which is like one example that you mentioned in your book, Um, I imagine there are people working on kind of regenerative materials design across a bunch of industries. Um, Education would be another field. Uh, What's another example? You would know more than I do, but um, I'm just wondering how well networked are the movements for this within each industry or are they still more isolated solutions? Um, Would it be helpful if there was better networking both within a specific industry or application and also across different industries to get more of the collaboration happening or is there tons of that interconnectivity within the regenerative cultures space across the planet at this point i think this field is moving so fast that i I won't even pretend that I know 100% for sure what the the correct answer to that question is. And what I've seen in general in the, let's say, more the the companies who started 10, 15 years ago to say, okay, we're going to climb Mount Sustainability, kind of Ray Anderson style in, in interface carpets, or the Patagonias of this world um, of saying, okay, how how can we be a sustainable apparel company how do we create outdoor clothing that doesn't kill the planet and the outdoors that we so love i think a lot of those companies realized that to clean up your supply chain particularly in this system that is so enormously globalized now and i'm I'm still not sure whether to my mind we we will see a move and it's already becoming a buzzword towards decentralized manufacturing so these bigger global companies won't just have one massive production place somewhere and then ship like bring the resources there and then ship the products out to all sorts of countries again i think people will start to look at what is our production site in asia what's our production site in north america what's our production site in africa um, but even those scales, to my mind, are maybe still too big to be fully sustainable in a holistic sense, because it's not just about the environmental impact of moving the products. It's also about what you do to regional economies when you ride these economies of scale and create cheaper products that could be created regionally. Um, but for example, what I do know from working as a consultant in the footwear industry and, and apparel industry a little bit is that cleaning up Nike or cleaning up Puma, even these massive companies realized that they could not clean up their supply chain by themselves. So that's why they created these consortia of different companies that are like the Sustainable Apparel Coalition or the Sustainable Footwear Coalition or the Sustainable Leather Coalition. And then once you get um, whatever, Nike, Puma, Timberland and Adidas all together saying, to some leather producer in Vietnam, by this date, we will not buy any more leather of you that is chromium cured. So you better take the chromium out of, out of your production processes, um, otherwise you won't have a customer anymore. Um, in the past, when it was only Puma who did that, then they said, well, then we'll sell our leather tonight, fine. Uh, but, but once they got together, they were able to do more of this um, and I think one of the shifts 
I like the work of, of Gregory Lando and, and Ethan Rowland on the, this little book that they've put out for free on the internet on regenerative enterprises, because they speak about this concept of regenerative enterprise ecologies. I think that's really key, that we, we have to learn the old business way of thinking was really, what, what's my competitive edge? How do, I, how do I get a competitive advantage over my competitors in, in my industry? And I think the shift is now towards what is our collaborative advantage? How can I create an ecosystem of collaboration with the people that are actually in the same line of business doing the same kind of products and pool knowledge to create better products that are more regenerative, have a better impact on the environment? Um, and actually do research and development together and, and share. Um, I think, that, again, there are so many massive transformations that are necessary in this, the whole space of how do we, on the one hand, protect somebody's investment into research and development, which sometimes it takes, like, one of the downfalls of the biomimicry stories is often that once they're there, the stories are amazing. But the reality is for each one of these amazing stories, there were 10 that didn't work out and somebody sank a lot of money in researching something that didn't get to product level. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, this idea that to create safe knowledge sharing spaces for companies to clean up their act and have a more regenerative impact um, locally, regionally, and globally is massively important. And I think um, we'll probably find that somebody will create some kind of brokerage event like a, a big conference where people will come together and start doing this carefully um, but th th there needs to be a transformation of how we patent innovation how we do open source sharing of all innovation and um, like do we still need patents and um, there's different ways of answering that question and I'm, I'm not even sure whether I have an answer to it. Um, I, I know that some people patent only in order to protect their products from being kind of cannibalized by big multinationals. So for, for example, my friend Paul Stamets from Fungi Perfecti, the um, mushroom guru, um, he has a lot of patents, but the patents aren't because he's ever going to go after somebody who does the same thing at a local scale selling good quality mushroom products, but the patents are there to protect them against um, Monsanto saying, no, no, now it's our product. Right, um, yeah. So it's, it's a tricky one, but I think we're moving into a new space towards collaborative advantage and these enterprise ecologies, where, where it also, another real interesting lesson that I learned from Ethan and Gregory is a regenerative company designs for its own death. It actually looks at how would, when what we do isn't the right thing anymore, isn't needed anymore. How can we feed our resources into the wider ecology in such a way that it benefits the wider system? And it, it's a whole new way of thinking about companies. Um, oh, that's but, awesome. Rather than how can we make the most money possible to sell out and then whatever happens with it, whatever, <laughs> we're on to our next thing. Yeah. There's, yeah, I think it's we're, we're, at the beginning, I think, Carol Sanford is doing this regenerative business summit and they're probably, that's probably the beginning of networks where companies go to meet other companies that are already open to have those kind of conversations. And, and as with every human relationship, you have to build trust first to do these things together. Uh, mm -hmm. It's shifting. The talking about coalition building reminds me that in your book, you mentioned the phrase polycentric governance systems. What, what's an example of that? I've never heard of that before. Um, a cen central governance system is this idea that whatever, in European, like you have your capital city and, and that's where the main government offices sit, run the nation. In your nation, it would be um, Washington, D.C. And um, in, in, in Germany, it's Berlin. Um, within the European Union's constitution, there's a, is a political principle enshrined that is called subsidiarity. And the European Union isn't running that way, but it claims to be. The basic concept is that decisions should be made at the level where they affect people the most by the people that are affected by the decisions. Mm -hmm. So it's almost turning the centralized government model on its head and the role for any of the larger coordinating bodies like a national government 
is really to, so, so, so a regional government is there to coordinate any of the things that cannot be effectively done at the local government level. And the national government level is there to do coordination and facilitation for regional government levels. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, it's sort of the, the local and regional are seen as the executive at the small scale of whatever is being decided at the large scale up at the center. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and really, the idea should be the other way around. And so polycentric government systems are, are basically, um, I, I think that both in terms of production and consumption and in terms of fitting people to place again, like indigenous or the traditionally was the case. Um, we, we used to live much more regionally and then we had a few people that ventured and, and traded globally. And I think we will see a re-regionalization and relocalization of production and consumption. And in that, we will also hopefully see a re-diversification of how things are done and of products. This, this kind of monoculture that no matter what UK high street you walk into, you, you see almost the same sequence of the same kind of shops in every town in, in the UK now. I think that's, that's um, hopefully going to change again. And, um, and polycentric governments would enable that um, because it basically would create incentives for companies to produce locally, create local jobs and do so in a way that, that is locally regenerative. Um, so it, it's a massive opportunity for innovation because you basically in, in every place you have to look at what do we have in abundance and what do we have a scarcity of here and how can we meet the needs of the local population with what we've got as much as possible and make trade something that, that is still connecting and globally collaborative but in a sense that like if you live in scotland you don't need butter from new zealand there's plenty of scottish butter around that you can eat and and it definitely is better for the ecosystem to use the local butter than than butter that has flown all around the planet yeah um, so yeah that's that's where that phrase came from what do you think the timeline is on that of transitioning in some ways back again, in some ways as an integrated thing um, to localized production. Do you think that that transition will massively happen by 2050? Do you think it'll be kind of a very slow and ongoing process? I think that it depends very much on, depending on who you talk to. There are lots of promises about um, in this field of the circular economy and in the field of new energy technologies, I err on the side of thinking that we are moving towards an energy constraint world, that we can do a lot with renewables, but we better be frugal with how we use energy. And so um, moving products the way we're doing at the moment, which is still heavily subsidized, we're still, the, the fossil fuel industry is subsidized at, at a multiple times the kind of small subsidies that go into renewables. Yep. And, um, and that makes it, still these hidden subsidies and, and externalities make it possible to have the global production system that we have at the moment. And, mm -hmm. and so as hopefully when governments realize that all these decisions and all these promises like committing to the Paris Agreement actually is a commitment that means we need to look at what we ship around the planet and what we don't ship around the planet. And, and the danger is also with the re-regionalization, is that we live in a time where a lot of populists like your current president and populists everywhere are using this, like they're also they're beginning to speak a re-regionalization language, but they do so from a completely di different and mistaken, to my mind, mistaken mindset compared to the people that would use this word in a regenerative sense. That's really it's, interesting. It's really something to be very aware of because you, you can, I found myself sitting with people here on Mallorca talking about, we need more local production. We need local food sovereignty. We need local energy sovereignty. And, and I was like, yes, yes, tick, tick. Yes, we're in agreement. Cool, I found my people. And then realized these people were actually also somewhat xenophobic. And the next sentence was, ideally, we should kick all the foreigners off the island and go back to Mallorcan only for the Mallorcans. Uh -huh. And that then becomes a kind of parochial, backward regionalism, them against us 
type of regionalism. And, and that's not the world that I think we can create on an overpopulated planet. We, we, right. need, we desperately need the coordinating bodies that allow us to build networks of global collaboration and global solidarity because, because we've already triggered environmental change processes that will mean that at least the next century, even if we go full force regeneration, will be a century of mega storms, mega droughts, mega floods, mega this and the other. And that means that even like at, at points, wonderful attempts at the regional scale to get it right might be wiped out in a day or two mm-hmm. with a massive disaster. And then we need to come together as one species and help those people. We can't just say, well, that's over on the other side of the planet. It's nothing for us. And so I think on the one hand, carbon constraints, the fact that we cannot burn the fossil fuels that are left. Um, it, it's not a conversation about peak oil anymore. Like since Paris, with even at the current estimated reserves of coal and gas and oil, we can only burn about a fifth or less of those reserves at maximum if we want to be serious about staying under 1.5 degrees. Uh, I don't know the figure off the top of my head, it's 235 gigatons or whatever, the carbon that that we are still allowed to burn. And if we go beyond that, we're definitely in runaway climate change mode. Um, And so taking those kind of figures to heart, it means that we, we just have to begin to create new policies that incentivize production processes that don't have that much carbon emission associated. And it also means that another big issue when we, when we look at this shift towards regenerative production is it's not that the getting out of fossil fuels isn't just getting out of fuels for transport and for heating and cooling and those things. It's also a shift in material culture because most of our consumer products are made from waste products from the petrochemical industry. The whole chemical industry evolved because we started using crude oil and lots of byproducts started to pile up and then we needed to make something out of those byproducts. So we created synthetic paints and we created gazillions of, of new chemicals um, making like they're creating a whole army of chemists trying to create more products out of the waste products from making oil and, and petrol and um, like a diesel and petrol. And so the shift is also a shift towards a biomaterial culture. Like how, how can we regrow the soils, regrow the forests, create biodiversity reserves for forests that we don't touch, but also create analog forests or agroforestry systems to grow the biomaterials out of which we make our clothes and our daily consumer products at the regionally recyclable scale and at a rate that we know we can replant mm-hmm. within in time. So, so timelines, um, I don't know. I, mean, I think we will create more and more pilot projects that will inspire people to follow something, do something similar. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we, we really need some political leadership to create the kind of policies that incentivize local production for local consumption. And the bizarre thing is, again, with, with your current president, it actually is a kind of protectionism. Like a lot of this sort of protecting against cheap imports from abroad might be part of favoring local production again. Yeah. And the only difference is that Trump is doing it to support the local, the American fossil fuel industry and not to create a new type of industry and then and the fourth industrial revolution towards a circular biomaterials economy at the scale of different regions or bioregions within the U.S. Right. Mm. Well, thank you for being such an amazing pollinator of ideas and sharing all this insight that you have throughout this interview today. Thank you for all the work you do in the world and the depth at which you think and feel through all these issues. Really, really respect the work that you do. Thank you. Um, I mean, I often, because as you know from reading my book, when I set out to write my book, I sat in front of blank pages and thinking, so how can I write something 
that will still be meaningful in 10, 15, 20, 25 years time. Um, how could I be so blinded or arrogant to pretend that I know the solutions and I'm going to write this book with all the right answers and, and, and so on. And that's really when the idea came that maybe as a culture, we have this obsession with quick fix solutions with silver bullets and, and answers. And that really the wisdom that we can learn from indigenous cultures is that if you were to create a, a cultural guidance system, a sort of compass that you hand down from one generation to the next to say, this will keep you somehow on the path towards a regenerative future. Maybe it isn't a set of solutions. Maybe it's a set of questions. And I still, every now and then, ask myself, am I probably promoting, probably in this conversation, promoted some ideas that sometime in the future we will realize that they weren't it either? like that we need to keep coming up with something better. But if we keep living the questions together and if we keep asking how can we do what biomimicry has found out is the kind of principle of how life operates, life creates conditions conducive to life. And can we create cultures that create conditions conducive to life for the whole human family and the whole family of life on earth? Really, that's if we. the more we can inspire more people everywhere to have those conversations, then we'll find the answers together. And they're not my answers, and they're not your answers, because they'll be our answers, and they'll be answers that have grown out of conversations in place. And so, yeah, let's trim tabs unite. Let's, let's keep working. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for doing this wonderful, like, helping to set up the Bloom Network and starting these podcasts. I think it's, that's how we change the way to facilitate positive emergence in complex dynamic systems is to connect the right agents with each other and pay attention to the quality of relationships and the quality of the information that flows. And I think what you're doing with the people you're interviewing is making quality information flow to the right people, and that will have an effect. So thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Really, it's an honor. So yeah, I encourage listeners to check out Daniel's book, Designing Regenerative Cultures. And for following current writings by you, is Medium the best place to yeah. follow your work on an ongoing basis? Basically, if you Google my name, Daniel Christian Wahl, and then Medium, my blog will pop up on Medium. And you can actually pretty much read most of my book for free on that blog in different chapters because I published a lot of excerpts from the book. There's now over 200 articles available on, on that blog, and there'll, there'll be more. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, much love to you and your family and the place where you are, Mallorca, the island, and this planet, sharing all those intentions with you. Boom, bow, boom, boom, bow, boom, boom, bow, boom, boom. Do you want a bloom in my hand? I've got love you for you. No, I'll do it this day. Ah